0: This podcast is brought to you thanks to the generous support of Whistler Blackcomb, leaders in delivering adventure.
1: It was like National Lampoon's vacation or something. You know, I remember uh, strapping things onto the roof of the station wagon and using yellow Canadian Tire rope. And remember one time my dad had this idea of the rope wasn't long enough. So, you know, when you melt that yellow rope and you melt two ends together, it's really strong because you know, if you can't tie knot- knots, of course that didn't go very well and then Trans-Canada Highway and the way the mountains, uh, everything
0: fell off. Welcome to Delivering Adventure. This is the podcast that explores what it really takes to share adventure like a pro, with your friends, your family, and as a profession. My name is Chris Capio, and I'm coming to you from Whistler, British Columbia.
2: And I'm Jordy Shepherd. Recording from Canmore, Alberta. After a lifetime of working extensively in different parts of the adventure guiding industry, Chris and I have teamed up to launch this podcast. In each episode, you will hear top adventure guides, managers, marketers, and athletes share their best stories, advice, and trade secrets. The goal of this podcast is to share how you can take yourself and others farther from the mountains to the office and beyond.
0: In this episode, we speak with Ken Belanger about the value of hiring a guide or an instructor. There are two different dimensions to this topic. First, if you are a guide or an instructor, you will find it helpful to understand why people actually want you. Second, if you're the type of person who likes to do things on your own, we are going to be talking about some of the many benefits of having a guide that you may not have considered. Now, we often think of guides in a professional sense like hiring a climbing, skiing, hiking, or paddling guide, or a ski, snowboard, mountain bike, or climbing instructor. However, most of us have benefited from help from our family, friends, and volunteer leaders. Yes, you can learn to do almost everything on YouTube, including how to launch a podcast. However, there is still no substitute to being guided and instructed by someone else in person. In this episode, we speak with Master Guide and Instructor Ken Belanger on why people do and should want the help of a guide.
2: Ken is an ACMG Ski, Hiking, and Via Ferrata Guide, CA Professional Member, CANSI Level 1 Nordic Ski and Telemark Instructor, CSI-A... <laughs> csi a <clears throat> Ken is an ACMG ski, hiking, and via ferrata guide, CA professional member, CanSee level one Nordic ski and telemark instructor, CSIA level one, and advanced wilderness adventure medic. Although Ken grew up in Calgary, not far from the mountains with his single father and two brothers, they didn't have the financial means to explore the mountains. It wasn't until his late teens when he could self-fund trips that he finally discovered skiing and hiking. He was immediately hooked. It was a steep learning curve to overcome his fear of heights and water. But within a few years, he was instructing and guiding water sports, climbing, cycling, and Nordic and telemark skiing. Ken considers himself extremely fortunate to have learned under some fantastic guides and instructors along the way. Now operating elevation guides with nearly 30 years of guiding experience in 23 countries, he couldn't imagine a better career. Ken resides in Canmore, Alberta, at the doorstep of beautiful Banff National Park. This is the first of two episodes that Ken is doing with us. In our second episode, we'll be exploring what it takes to deliver exceptional value when you are someone else's guide.
0: As always, at the end of the episode, we will recap some key takeaways, and we will finish up with a very funny story from Ken. Before we bring Ken into the DA studio... Jordy, can you recommend a great
2: camping pillow to our listeners? Well, yeah, Chris, I, I guess I can. I seem to have become an expert in it. Uh, our listeners out there just uh, search for CNN and camping pillows and uh, you'll you'll see uh, some review that I did uh, when CNN contacted me. And uh, it's amazing how many different pillows there are out there. And it's amazing how I really like my pillow when I'm camping.
0: I'm always learning new things about you, Jordy, and your many skills. All right, here is Ken
2: Belanger. Hi, Ken. Welcome to the show. Where are you right now?
1: Good morning. I'm in Canmore, which is usually a beautiful spot, but uh, surrounded by mountains. But today, unfortunately, we don't see any mountains. Forest fires in the north of Alberta, and central Alberta. Pretty smoky. Nice place to live, normally.
2: Yeah, we won't get into the climate change issue today. Tell us about your path into the adventure industry.
1: Uh, I'd say my path is atypical. Uh, You know, uh, I grew up in Calgary, uh, French-Canadian family, uh, but very poor, working class, blue-collar. Unfortunately, I had a pretty pretty crappy childhood overall. Uh, Abuse in the home, uh, a very, very inner-city type of childhood. The outdoors is just something we did to run away from being in the house where things were happening. Ended up uh, going into foster homes for a while, uh, but it all worked out in the end. Uh, eventually, uh, I um, mo- moved in with my dad. My brothers and I have two younger brothers, with three boys, which was probably a pretty handful. And we and I raised my two my two younger brothers uh, with living my dad as a single father. Uh, never had any money. So going to the mountains was something we did a little bit of, but it was car camping. That was the extent of it. We didn't even go hiking. We car camped. We basically got to the campground and uh, it was like National Lampoon's vacation or something. You know, I remember uh, strapping things onto the roof of the station wagon and using yellow Canadian tire rope. And pretty much every single trip, we'd show up with one or two less pieces of stuff that were on the roof. We thought when we left. I remember one time my dad had this idea of the rope wasn't long enough. So, you know, when you melt that yellow rope and you melt two ends together, it's really strong. Because, you know, if you can't tie knot- knots. So we did that. And, of course, that didn't go very well. And Trans Canada Highway and the way the mountains, everything fell off the roof. But uh, that's that's how my my mountain, basically the extent it was car camping whenever we could get out uh, as a kid with basically no money. Uh, And then I got a job uh, in uh, when I finished high school, I had no idea what I was going to do. I barely finished high school, wasn't a great student. I was pretty focused with raising my brothers, uh, working almost full time in high school as well, just retail jobs. And I had no idea what I was going to do. And I got a job working in a bedroom community in Calgary, outside of Calgary, uh, working for Parks and Rec. It was a pretty crappy job, but I was outside all the time. And I went, huh, even though I was a glorified weed eater, basically, actually, it wasn't glorified. I was a weed eater. I was a weed eater technician, engineer. Uh, I got to do other stuff, but really weed eating was the pinnacle of the career. And uh, I realized that I needed to be outside. I had no idea what it would be. I had no idea what guiding was. I had no idea people did things like this in the mountains. Uh, I didn't know how to swim. I was deathly afraid of water. I was afraid of heights. I had uh, certainly never rock climbed. I'd never been in a canoe before. I'd never pretty much hardly even been on a boat, if you don't don't count the ferry going to Vancouver Island. Uh, And I didn't ride a bike. I didn't ski. I grew up playing hockey like a lot of kids. Thought I wanted to be, was going to be a pro. Kept on playing right into junior. And uh, the, uh, kept hearing over and over again, I wasn't good enough to be a pro, and I wasn't big enough, I'm not a particularly big guy, and but I said, there's guy's in the league who are, you know, my size. I was told often they're better than I am. That was maybe the difference. So finally, I needed a winter thing, and I started skiing at like 18 years old. It was the first time I actually started skiing. Went, bought some used crappy skis, and went, out and went skiing, and uh, couldn't afford lift tickets. So then I thought, well, I can go to the backcountry. I don't have to pay for lift tickets. I don't know anything about the backcountry, but... That was my, that was kind of my intro. So, uh, you know, fast forward to deciding I wanted to go to university. Education was not valued in my family at all. It was actually devalued. Nobody in my family, you know, most of them don't even have high school. Uh, But I knew I wanted to go to university. But I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I stalled and stalled and did a gap year. The gap year became two gap years, basically doing nothing. And suddenly my girlfriend at the time registered me for university. Uh, You can't do that nowadays, but it's a good thing she did because I don't know if I would ever have gotten them from my butt and did it. So I just went to general studies, again, still not knowing what I wanted to do. And then I heard about this program called Outdoor Pursuits, which is in the the faculty of gym, uh, otherwise known as physical education, otherwise known as kinesiology. Pretty unique program. Uh, So it was a university degree and it was focused on becoming, uh, you know, working in the outdoors, not just guiding, but working in the outdoors. They only allowed seven, 16 people in a year. It was a relatively rigorous application process, including personal interviews. I applied. I may have exaggerated my experiences because I had none, but they would have seen through it. And I still to this day do not know how they let me in. I had zero experience. Everyone else in the program had grown up with their parents doing stuff. Climbing, skiing, hiking, backpacking—I had done none of those things, and suddenly I was in a program where I was on track to maybe become a guide. So, long answer, but an atypical story for sure.
2: And then, so now now you're you're at UFC there, Adventure Pursuits, and so what what made you want to become a guide from there? Because you're you're now in this outdoor program. And then where was the turning point to say, I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. I'm going to become a professional.
1: Yeah. So it wasn't a, I don't think it was a switch that went on my head. I knew I wanted to do something outdoors. I fell in love with the mountains and I fell in love with being in the mountains. And I fell in love with challenge. I'd always been challenged. My life had always had lots of challenges, but those challenges were basically surviving, surviving, getting through life, getting through the childhood that I had, getting my brothers to the childhood that we had. Uh, and I wanted a personal challenge and I wanted the mountains. I was on a bad path. I was on a bad path without getting too into it, but there was a lot of abuse problems surrounded by it. And I could see myself going down that same road pretty easily. And what the mountains gave to me was an outlet. It, it, it they were, it was opportunity. It was, it was limitless adventure and I knew nothing about them. And I was a willing, keen student and I was terrified. And that actually intrigued me more than anything else. I had I had been terrified so many times in my life that this just seemed like at least I can control this and it's not external forces. And so I just bit by bit decided what I wanted to do is make my life, make a career in the outdoors. And guiding seemed like the thing to do i didn't really wasn't really aware again i wasn't aware of any careers in the outdoors at that point so it was the first thing i was exposed to Uh, and and then it turned out that i really enjoy people and working with people and helping people to attain and so that was the attraction so not not only could i be outside myself uh which was obviously super important to me but i could help people get outside and i was i i still feel and that I feel the mountains are formative and they can change lives. They have changed lives. They've changed my lives and millions of other people. And if I can help, even in a small way, for to enrich people's lives, then I feel like I've done my job. And that's the appeal for guiding for me. And that's when I decided I wanted to become a guide. But I had a lot to learn. It was a pretty steep learning curve, seeing as I had no experience with anything. I remember being sick to my stomach in the morning. I'd have to go to the to climbing gym in the morning, at the University of Calgary, the first one of the world's world's uh, first climbing gyms. And I was terrified. I was so afraid to even get five meters off the floor. I was terrified. Uh, I'd be sick to my stomach. I, um, But I was just like, I got to work through this. And uh, same when I started kayaking, when I started canoeing, when I started skiing, all these things. Yeah.
2: Yeah, there's a reason why there's so much mountain literature about the experience of being in the mountains and then movies that have been made about it. Some of them sensationalized. But uh it's yeah, it's a it's a thing, right? It's a it's that challenge. It's the, it's there's kind of nothing like it. And being able to in- introduce people to it is quite amazing.
1: I think it's a gift. I think I'm lucky to do what I do. Um I've worked for it for sure, like like you have. Um, but I do think that we're lucky yeah
2: so who are some of the influential guides that have helped you achieve adventure
1: uh i think you know probably like a lot of folks it's sometimes your first point of contact particularly with the world that i had no concept of before i was like 18 19 years old and those would be my instructors at the University of Calgary in the outdoor pursuits program. So Murray Toft, who's a mountain guide, an ACMG mountain guide, IFMJ Mountain Guide, and Bruce Hendricks, who was an instructor there who was, you know, not an ACMG certified, but a super accomplished in the mountains. Um, you know, climbed some of the hardest ice routes at the time, Sea of Vapors, etc. And those there were also instructors in that program were pretty formative for me. But those those two fellows especially, I mean, they taught me everything that I basically no, but them, you know, certainly open the doors. Like I said, I didn't have any experience. So I had never put a harness on before. The first time I put a harness on was with Marie and Bruce. And you know, within a year I was climbing ice, grade five ice, and, and you know, mountaineering and outside. And and you know, a year before that I I didn't I was scared walking upstairs. So that's a pretty big and not only did they teach the technical skills, they taught me a lot of the soft skills. That I think are probably the most important tools that I now use as I've attained the technical level I need to have in order to be certified. The soft skills and 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 you know the client care and uh, the experience of of why am I'm, I'm there. Being humble in the mountains, understanding the mountains don't care who I am, where I've come from, what I've done, what my you know, objectives may be, this is my one weekend, and the urge to continue learning to continue to grow and to get better. I feel like I learned a lot of that from from those from those guys.
2: And you probably could have gotten some of that on your own or a lot of that on your own. But do you feel like being with them and around them in that in that course, and having them lead you through things and give you experiences that it was really quite a fast track for you?
1: It was definitely a fast track. And in my particular experience, I don't know if I would have gotten that on my own, because like I said, I was terrified of everything and zero experience. I needed to be thrown in the fire. Now, I I guess you could say I threw myself in the fire by applying for the program, but then it was like, okay, now we're going on a five days, you know, ski mountaineering trip. And I, everything in my soul was telling me don't do this. I'm terrified. Uh, And, but you know, that was the program and that was it and i also had confidence in their skills and their learning and i i definitely well i would say from my particular experience i don't think i would have been able to get to that point on my own or if i did it would have taken nearly forever and it wouldn't have been as effective and i probably still wouldn't be you know as effective as i am in, in the in the work that i do so
2: Yeah, and it's speculation, but maybe you, you know, would try and do it on your own and have an epic and get rescued or not get rescued when you need to get rescued or whatever might happen there. And if you survive that, you might have just like said, nope, that's not for me.
1: Yeah, I think I mean I had my I've had my share of epics and things like that, like a lot of us have, but I probably had less than some other people do because Coming into the program, I had zero experience, so I didn't just go out there and, you know, I had some little things that happened, but uh, I got to learn how to do things right from the very beginning, from the get-go, and that was pretty fortunate because, let's look at this demographically, a young guy in his 20s, you know, there's a reason insurance is high, to drive a car or to drive a motorcycle or whatever, you know? Uh,
2: Statistics show
1: Statistics show. So, uh, I wasn't a big risk taker necessarily because, as I said, I was afraid. But that doesn't mean that I certainly couldn't have made poor decisions. Thinking I'm not taking risk, that that doesn't mean that you're not that you're making the right decision and not exposing. You don't know if you're exposed to risk if you don't understand what those risk what the risk is. If you don't understand what the hazards are, Grant Statham wow. talked about that quite a bit in the episode you guys had you know uh, a little while ago and i think a lot of people don't don't even know that you know it, that's a continuous process of learning so yeah like i said speculation maybe a bit of conjecture but i i don't i think i was fortunate in that i my formative years were right at the beginning and i got professional instruction right from the get go to minimize the amount of epics that i had and dramatically kept me alive but at least kept me out of trouble
2: but you know, when I when I went to Depot Division in Saskatchewan with uh, the RCMP training program as a park warden back in the day, they we, they have a track there, and they have driver training instructors, and it's it's unbelievable. They they give you the keys to a cop car and say, "Giver, go do a few laps." You're like, "Really?" Like, "Yep, <laughs> just go go as fast as you want." And then when you come back, we'll teach you how to really drive. And it's you know you you're cocky and you've been driving for a while and, and driving emergency response vehicles at that point. And it's like, okay, yeah, I I got this. And then, yeah, they, they totally, they, they have, they have tools and techniques available to them that you didn't even know were possible to, to train from. So, so that brings us to why do you think people hire a guide?
1: Yeah. I mean, and I think that's it. I and mean, you touched on a pretty important part there. I think everyone has their reasons and the reasons may be variable between different, you know, for different folks. And even within a group, there could be, you know, a group of friends, let's say, come together to hire a guy to do whatever it is that they want to do. And they may not all have the same reason. Some of them maybe had some crossover, but it seems like the ones that I, that I hear or that I understand the most is, um, you know, people are busy nowadays and, uh, probably always. And, uh, I mean, they lack the time and the resources to effectively do it on their own or safely do it on their own. Safety is a big thing, obviously. I mean, as a guide, we cannot guarantee safety. That is not something that anyone can do. But we are risk managers and we do our very best to operate safely. And our high level of training and expertise in whatever it is that we're working in helps us to do that. And uh, we just... We spend a lot of time out there, and uh, if someone is a nine to fiver who has a full time job or whatever industry they may work in and has a family, they just don't—they're not able to do that. So, uh, so I think a a, a guide can maximize somebody's experience and safety in the mountains because of that. So if you only have a certain amount of time and you don't necessarily have the experience, well, you know, if you go out with a guide who's certified and a professional, they're going to be like, okay, this is the conditions we have. This is what you want to do. This is what's realistic. And this is what, you know, and this may change 15 times during the day, depending on, you know, that you need to be pivoting constantly. Experience allows and training allows us to do that. Someone without that experience and training, that's pretty difficult to do. Uh, maybe they will have a specific objective that they are focused on and they know they can't do it alone, maybe from a physical standpoint or uh, certainly a technical standpoint, that's the obvious one. But I mean, even physical, like, you know, uh, sometimes if it's a big route, there might be a lot of gear that needs to go along and uh, that's heavy, you know, and there's a lot of logistical planning that needs to happen. And the local knowledge and other options, you know, you, everyone, when they imagine they're going to go on a trip somewhere, they imagine blue skies and unicorns jumping over, over rainbows. Um, and that's just not the way the weather is in the mountains all the time or in the ocean or wherever it may be. And so when you get out there, I mean, I know I've done things where I've done trips where it was, you know, bluebird weather. And partway through the guests are kind of like, well, we could have done this on our own, you know, and it's like, well, it's easy when it's easy. But I also think of it as uh, I used to get a little bit uh, perturbed when people would say, "Well, your job's pretty easy." Uh, but then I started to realize that uh, if I make if I'm making the job look easy, I'm probably doing a pretty good job because there's a lot going on in the background that a lot of people are not necessarily aware that's happening. That my guests may not even be aware that's happening. There's a lot of things. Preparation that's happened beforehand and then processing that's happening during the day or during the days. And if I'm making it look easy, then I'm probably doing a pretty good job because it, it's not always easy. There's a there's a lot happening. So that's be my last point of why people I think people who are tuned in hire a guide is because they probably realize they don't know what they don't know. And that's a classic thing in any walk of life, any industry, you don't know what you don't know. And so they realize that and there's a lot of things that they can't control. We talked about earlier with the risk. So I think those are the, those are the reasons uh, I come across most often.
2: And how about for the folks that you know, there's a lot of people that don't hire guides and they do a you know, excellent job of risk management and are out there all the time. It's a huge passion for them. Some of them just on the weekends. And then some people they they just make it a a life's passion, right? To to explore and adventure and and be out there. But they don't they don't hire guides. So why do you think what do you think they would get for value out of hiring a guide?
1: I don't think anyone tells you you need to hire a guide for sure. I think those people you described and some of them are friends of mine that I, you know, started doing things in the mountains with who said, you know, what? I love doing things in the mountains, but I never want to become a guide because I want to go out there and do things on my own and I don't want to be responsible for everyone else. And I think that's fine. Um, but I but I I also have a number of clients that do a lot of personal trips, but they will hire me for certain maybe more difficult trips, however you want to define difficulty. There's a bunch of different ways to define the difficulty. Let's say technical difficulty. That's usually the easiest one. And so it's almost like a hybrid, you know? So, and and Canadian guides in particular, uh, we're not just guides, I don't think, particularly when I talk about, well, partic- you know, not even just ACMG, but a lot of it, we're not just guides. I think we're also instructors, and so we are you know having worked in europe extensively and seeing how guiding happens there a lot of it is follow me follow me with whatever generic accent you want to use and i think in canada that doesn't necessarily work with their clientele they want to learn and they want to become better at whatever activity they're doing and uh i think a good guide in canada and certainly going through the acmg program that is part of it is teaching those skills, uh, the teaching the teaching skills, so under helping people be better at it. And so that's how somebody who could maybe who's done things, you know, for years and years on their own, and had a lot of experiences and a lot of positive experiences, and maybe met a lot of their objectives. Well, they could still benefit from hiring a guide, maybe a tune up of their skills, just like the same way we as guides do continuing professional development, we can't just assume that we know everything. We get to a point, we're done, and we take our foot off the gas. Well, I don't think, I think everyone in the mountains or on the ocean or in the rivers and the lakes, whatever, should always be trying to get better. And a guide instructor can help you do that, even if you don't hire them for every activity you do.
0: Uh, Ken, you raise a lot of great points about the different value that guides can bring to our experiences. And it really got me thinking about a a, a day I had with... Uh, Peter Wyland, who was on the show uh, a little while ago, and uh, myself, we actually went to the Whistler uh, bike park, and I hadn't been there before, and and I don't think Peter had actually been there before either. And we ran into a friend of ours, uh, Marius Marginian, uh, who's an instructor there, and he took us under our wing. And we've been talking about hiring a guide often in the context of of paying, you know, paying money. But in this situation, Marius actually came in, and uh, and gave us his time, and so we were paying for it with our time and our trust because he's a great guy. And so he ended up taking us out and, um, you know, cruising around. And I, I have to confess, I'm I'm not a great mountain biker, and I haven't taken much formal uh, education in that. But just following him and getting a little bit of coaching made the difference. And we had no idea where we were going, like no idea whatsoever. And it, it yeah, it, it's it's pretty underrated. Often our guides or are, are our friends. You know, somebody is like, hey, I've, I've been to that spot before. Follow me, or, or it's our friend saying, hey, you can do it. But you know, the the power of a professional or even semi professional or somebody who's been trained to be able to give you that that bested piece of advice is super important and. You know, just kind of adding on to that, I did a lot of guiding in the Canadian Rockies and we would do um, six day trips where we were camping and going hiking and things like that. And I, and I thought about it often with some of the people that we had because they, they seemed to be able to go out and do it on their own. But for them, to your point, they didn't have the time. They were working uh, a lot. And so when they came on vacation, they didn't want to have to spend the time to figure out the best place to go on that day with that piece of weather and to organize all of the gear and even the social element of having somebody to organize within the group, how to bring the group together and to get along and the camaraderie and and everything like that. And I think there is a lot to be said about going out in a, in a group or with other people in a In a situation where you're experiencing some adversity, it really does add a lot to it to be with others and not just just on your own. Do you have an experience of a situation where you were able to help someone to achieve something that they wouldn't have been able to achieve on their own?
1: Yeah, I mean, I have plenty of those experiences, thankfully. You know, (laughs) I think I've been fortunate. I'll tell you a little story that's a little bit different than probably a lot of the kind of stories that you maybe hear on this podcast. A little bit is that I have, you know, obviously we've been talking a lot about the work I do in the mountains, but uh, I do a different kind of work in the mountains too. And that I used to race a uh, fairly high level bicycling, uh, one of my things that I kind of discovered when I was in my late 20s, early 20s, I mean to say, and uh, really got into biking. And then when I, uh, to make a long story short, I, I uh, wanted to travel to Europe. I didn't have any money to travel to Europe, and so I thought the best way I could travel to Europe with all the student loans debt that I had was I could work for one of these bicycle touring companies. So I, you know, applied. It was still guiding to some extent, and you know, I worked for this one company for a few years, and then I was hired to start another company uh, called Trek Travel, which is a division of Trek Bicycle. So I was actually the founder of Trek Travel. Me and another guy were hired by them to start the company, uh, and. One of the first things that we did was this is when Lance Armstrong was winning the Tour de France and all these big bike races, and he worked for he rode Trek bikes. That was the one of the sponsors of the team, and so we this burgeoning interest, this this exploding interest in cycling was happening, particularly in the U.S. because you had an, you know American team, a team composed mainly of American riders, you know having great success uh, on you know what was predominantly up to that point a very european dominated sport and i was responsible for all the european programs so i I ran all the european programs for this you know we started the company and then i ran the european division and one of the things that i did was i ran trips that followed the tour de france and so we would have uh you know up to 200 250 Clients, uh, that many bicycles plus spares, about 50 guides, um, tons of vehicles and trailers. And I'd have several different itineraries running each week of the tour. We basically break the tour into three weeks, more or less. And uh, these itineraries would be all different, eight different itineraries per week. And we would get people to places where they could actually ride stages of the Tour de France, Uh, on the actual day that the racers were going to ride that same part. They wouldn't ride the entire stage. They're too big, but they would ride, you know, some of the big passes and there is no way that people would have been able to do this on their own. Really. Uh, The the logistics were massive. Just getting the trip together, uh, the accommodations, because the pro, you know, all these little hotels were booked up a year in advance. I would start working on things a year in advance. So, I can't even, I'm not telling you anything specifically, but there was, you know, many, many experiences where people were able to ride their bike uh, over a big pass in the Alps, let's say, and then stand on the top at a restaurant that I had booked out privately for us and watch the Tour de France ride right past the pass that they'd just ridden up. And then maybe later on, they got to meet some of the riders from the tour themselves so that's not something they would have been able to do on their own so a little bit different thing than you know the technical side of it and that's i just present that because i think it's a different aspect of leading or guiding that people may not you know be aware of or think about but for me i ended up doing that for 10 years that kind of guiding and. uh uh, find it very rewarding and got to go a lot of really cool places and great experiences. And, you know, the skills that I had, I'm French-Canadian, so the, the language skills that I had, the logistical skills, the cycling background that I had, um, that all had to come together
0: uh, to be able to put those trips together. Having a guide goes way beyond just, as you mentioned, that technical skill. It's that local knowledge. It's being able to help somebody to achieve something that they couldn't do on their own and when i think about why people would hire a guide with their money with their time with their trust etc there's really three reasons right it's it's because they can't or they don't think they can do it on their own it's because they want to learn uh something interesting or they want to learn something new and it's not always about that super risky that super risky thing sometimes the biggest breakthroughs are just that that like you said being able to have that local knowledge of arriving and wow this is so and so who's riding on the tour de france that's what people are going to remember i mean that's a great story that they can go away and tell their friends and themselves that they wouldn't be able to do on their own so when it comes to hiring a guide what is your advice to people out there it can be hard to know uh I'll give you an example. I was thinking about going to Kamchatka, and I was on the on the internet, and you're looking at all these websites, and you're like, "Wow, who you know? If if we went and did a trip there, what? Who would be good? How would you know that?" What kinds of things can you suggest to our listeners out there?
1: I think uh, it's, you need to research. You need to spend some time in the interwebs. Uh, I think that's part of anything we do nowadays. Right. And so, uh, but of course, someone can put together some pretty impressive websites and not necessarily um, be the right fit for what you're looking to do. Uh, I think if it's anything that involves some technical skills, I would definitely be looking for somebody with a certification. So, uh, you know, in Europe, for example, guiding, certainly mountain guiding is a regulated profession. And you guys have talked about this on your show before. And, you know, in a lot of other places in the country, in the world, it's not regulated. And so it's that, unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, depending on your perspective, it puts the onus on the guest on the client to do some research because people will just hang a shingle and call themselves a guide and they're self-designated guide and because they've been doing something for a long time does not actually necessarily mean they're a great risk manager they may be they may not if they have a certification of some kind uh, a pertinent certification then theoretically, at least they have been objectively examined and tested and trained to that level of that you would theoretically want for somebody guiding you. And so I whenever I see things all the time in the social media influencing world, I see this quite a bit, people call themselves guides. And one of the first things I do is I'll go to their website, and I will read their thing. And essentially, if someone doesn't list their certifications they're not because if you put so much work in to get certified into whatever it is you're going to want people to know you're certified and and also i find sometimes people are pretty good at expanding on their certifications and using these fancy names and words but essentially you think i think what you want to do is do a little bit of research and be like i want to go to kamchatka and i want to go i don't know what you want to do there i mean i think there's some heli skiing there or something isn't there what are you going to do there I don't even know but bear watching oh okay yeah well i mean i think you got to figure out what you want to do and you got to figure out what the skills that need to be and uh and figure out what you think those certifications and then look for those i think that's super important whether you're going on a canoe trip or you're going on a mountain guiding uh i think that's pretty darn important and and then the experience in their skills well if they have these certifications experience and skills are obviously going to come along with that right they're going to have that experience and skills and then i think it's a good idea like what i do with all my clients certainly if it's anything that's you know I have in personal interaction with every client that I do. I have purposely decided not to scale my business, so I I don't have a lot of guides who work for me. I rarely do. I do mostly guiding myself. I like I said before, I managed a company where I had fifty guides working for me, and that was great. But I was never guiding. I was just pushing papers around. It was great learning, but I in this business so I could be outside and. So that I have a personal interaction with each one of my guests, whether we're going to just do a single day course, or we're going to do a 15 day trip. And in that personal interaction, you know, before I get very far down the road with them, I do what I call a discovery session, where we'll start by email, you know, there's always people who are sometimes kicking tires. So I have to figure out how, you know, I only have a certain amount of time. But I when when it's obvious to me that people are, are serious, then I'm going to take that up a level and I'm going to want to interact, hopefully by phone. That's been my pride. But if that doesn't work for some reason, then emails. And so I think if you're looking to hire a guide for some kind of a relatively big, uh, you know, objective, that person should be able to talk with you, you should be able to communicate with that person. that that would probably give you a pretty good feel right off the bat after you've done all your other filtering beforehand you've made your short list
0: yeah that's excellent advice so do you have any other advice or is there anything you would like to add when it comes to either getting the most out of guided experiences or appreciating why having a guide is so valuable i think it's important to know what your objectives are so that's one of the
1: first things I'm going to ask people is what is your objective, and that may be a personal objective and it may be a group objective. And the group thing can be tricky because you've got a bunch of cats that come together, and sometimes I'm only talking with the ringleader, and that person may be speaking on behalf of the rest of the group, and I, I don't necessarily know what the rest of the group. Is. I hopefully, you know, but I think it's pretty important that the group has a consensus on what it is that they that their objective. Is their objective a certain summit or route? Or is their objective just to have a great day, safe day in the mountains? Or is their objective to learn certain skills? The more clear you can be on that, you don't have to be super detailed because we're professionals. We can, you know, figure that out. But the more clear you can be on that, the easier it makes us to tailor something for you. I mean, a lot of guiding is not necessarily... Here, come in, you're doing box A, box B, box C. I think a good guiding is what do you what do you want? Particularly, I think every time you hire a guide, it should be to a certain extent, extent should be bespoke, should be private, you know, unless you're unless you are a bunch of unless you're offering a trip where a bunch of different people come in who don't know each other. That's, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about someone hiring a guide specifically, I think probably a, either individually or as a group. And in that case, the more clear you can be on the objectives, the better you're gonna have the better experience you're gonna have, I think.
0: Well, this has been great, Ken. we're just gonna leave this off uh, here. Thanks so much uh, for this and we're gonna carry on this this conversation in our next episode. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me.
2: If you'd like to join Ken on one of his instructional courses or guided trips, you can contact Ken through Elevation Guides at elevationguides.ca. You can also check out Ken on Instagram. His handle is at elevationguides. So Chris, what came to mind as you listened to Ken?
0: Well, where to start? There was a lot to unpack there, Jordy. I'll begin with some of the reasons why people hire a guide. When I say hire a guide, I mean they're paying for this guidance with their time, their trust, their engagement, and in some cases, their money. To me, there are three underlying reasons why people want someone to be their adventure guide. Number one is they want to go somewhere they either can't or don't think they can access on their own. Number two, they want to improve their skills or learn something so that they can be better at whatever they're doing. And number three, They want to get more out of the experience by having someone else there with them who can help to structure the experience in a positive way. Ken highlighted a number of different practical aspects of these three points, including the fact that guides can help us with all of the little details. These are often things that we might not have thought of or known about. Guides can also help to fast track improvement. They do this by showing us the shortcuts, the better way to do things, and they can help us to become better technically and show us how to become more efficient. Jordy, what stood out to you?
2: Well, Chris, Ken is obviously an expert in a lot of different areas. He has been guiding in not only a lot of areas geographically, but also in a lot of different activities, guiding and instructing for years, where some guides or instructors, they choose to specialize in one area Ken really, he he works winter and summer and in lots of different venues. So one of the things that Ken talked about was how guides can maximize the experience by making the most of the time people have and helping us to manage the risks more effectively. Guides and instructors can also help to build connections. They can connect us to the place and the activity by increasing understanding of where we are and what we're doing. This boosts a sense of place and purpose. Guides and instructors help people to go farther than they otherwise could or believe they could on their own thanks to coaching, support, knowing where to go and how to do it. Ken also noted that for many people, nature and adventure is an outlet. This outlet helps us to push ourselves, show us what we can do and stay focused on what matters. Having a guide with us can help us get the most of this experience.
0: All great points, Jordy, for why we should want to have a good guide with us when we are setting out on new adventures. In our next episode, we're going to switch things around by looking at how guides can deliver exceptional value to the people that they are leading. Before we finish off with one last funny story from Ken, we want to remind you to make sure that you have clicked the follow button in your podcast player so that you don't miss out on future episodes. Now, here's Ken with one last story.
1: Yeah, so uh, it's a, back to when I was working the Tour de France trips. And so put yourself way back uh, to when Lance Armstrong and the uh, you know the team had various names. But anyways, it was winning the Tour de France. In 2004, the Tour de France did something they've never done before and haven't done since. Which they did a time trial on one of the most iconic mountains in France called the Alpe d'Huez. And the Alpe d'Huez, is, uh, it's a big climb. It's a mountain climb. And uh, it has 21 switchbacks. And I think it's become iconic in the tour, mainly because of the imagery, you know, you know now they're doing with drones probably, but they used to do with helicopters. And you see the switchbacks, and you see the ride and the battle. So they did a time trial, which means that, you know, a lot of times there's a big stage, and then they'll climb Alpe at the end of the stage. But this time it was, the stage was just a time trial. So individual starts, one person, uh, one cyclist at a time, certain interval apart so this is a very 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 highly anticipated stage of the 2004 tour and they estimate they had one million people on the mountain and uh the great amazing thing about bicycle racing is you don't need to have money to go see a bike race you don't buy tickets you just show up and stand on the side of the road and cheer your favorite or jeer your least favorite, whatever you're doing. And one million people were on the mountain that day. And so they uh had the roads closed several days in advance because there's basically one road in and two roads in and one, you know, essentially, and then one road. And as you can imagine, it was mayhem, traffic mayhem. So working on this tour, everything in advance, I knew all this and, you know, well in advance, months in advance. And we obviously needed to get all of our guests up there because it's the up time trial of you know lances i can't remember what tour he won or did not win you know the whole world. we do a whole other episode that wouldn't fit delivering adventure on doping but regardless uh we figured out a way to get to our guests at top of the mountains which was and we surprised him we didn't tell anyone else we were doing this until basically the day of a couple of days before and we helicoptered you know 300 people to the top of up so because there was no other way to get up there. They weren't even allowing bi- people to ride the bicycles up that day, which is pretty rare, but that's how much people, how many people were. So Trek Lance, by this point, huge celebrity, big celebrity around the world. And celebrities attract celebrities. And so Hollywood type people get attracted to people like Lance. So what would happen with Trek Bicycles would always drop this on me the last minute and be like, by the way, this person's here, take care of them. And all of a sudden it's the Tour de France, there's nowhere to stay within 500 kilometers and I'm supposed to take care of this VIP person. And so this basically the day of, I find out from the president of Trek Bicycles that Robin Williams is at the Tour de France. And Robin Williams is what I call an FOL, a friend of Lance. Robin was actually a very avid cyclist really into cycling and you know being a celebrity he connected with lance somewhere along the way and lance said robin is robin is here take care of him he told his people who told their people who told their people and eventually comes back to me so i end up helicoptering robin williams to the top of the up and i spent most of the day at the finish line of arguably one of the biggest uh, cycling events days in you know recent history with Robin Williams who made a time trial at the tour de France, the funniest thing you could ever imagine. I can't think of any particular stories. It was nonstop. Like I was, my stomach was so sore. It was unbelievable. It was an unbelievable day. Uh, and he was actually a super nice man, super knowledgeable with cycling which made it even funnier because he had all these little inside cycling jokes. So pretty wild day that I experienced on the top of Alpe d'Huez and Tour de France with Rob Williams. Uh, It was pretty stressful to put it together for sure uh, because I still had, you know, all these other guests I was taking care of, but I was supposed to be where I was, by the way, I was organizing, you know, during the day I was putting out fires as they happen and people calling me left and right about different things, but I was where I needed to be and, yeah. Lance won that stage or didn't, depending on what the UCI decides, but uh, pretty, pretty exciting. I mean, I love cycling, so it was pretty, pretty, pretty cool place to be. I got paid like a $1.99 too. This industry is not going to make you a millionaire. Some people are, but.